Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the ASC Podcast Series. I'm Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. Today I'm speaking with Claudio Miranda, ASC, a cinematographer who was nominated for Academy, ASC, and BAFTA Awards for his remarkable work on the curious case of Benjamin Button. He also photographed the stunning futuristic science fiction film Tron Legacy, which found innovative and dramatically expressive uses for 3D. His latest film, Life of Pi, uses 3D to very different ends, to tell a story that is simultaneously intimate and epic and set in the real world, yet with an unreal quality thanks to Claudio's ability to visualize spiritual impulses on screen. It is his work on that film, in collaboration with director Ang Lee, that will be the focus of our conversation today. So, Claudio, maybe just to start with, uh, you could quickly kind of explain the the premise of the film and and talk a little bit about how you came to be involved with it. Um, I mean, I came to be involved with the movie, I mean, I'm... I'm assuming because it was my work on uh, Benjamin Buttons and my work on Tron kind of together because we didn't know this movie had to be digital for th- for 3D reasons and Ang wanted to shoot 3D as well. So I think it was a collaboration between those two jobs that actually got me the job. And uh, I guess for people who haven't seen the movie yet, what, how would you describe it? Well, it's, it's just, just uh, it was, if you read the book, it's quite a thing to take... Um, to try to take into like a exact context the whole thing takes place in the water i just knew it'd be those water challenges were really difficult um half the book is in the is on the water in the tank and how to make this interesting and give it kind of you know feel different so we you know we did a lot with being so we devised a, a system where we could change different lighting whether i could bring natural light open the the, the silks up and open the doors up and bring natural light, natural sunset, or close it off and do overcast and do storms and do just, you know, night. And we had, I had blacks that could fly and, and change the shape of the light and the big giant sun. To, so it was really important to kind of have a system that I could kind of, we'd just kind of call the weather. And Ang went to me and said, you know, it's 10 a.m., 8 a.m. And we just kind of follow that kind of feeling in the weather. And, and there was a lot of visual references, too, as well. There were some paintings that we, we looked at. And some of those moments have, like, the kind of a little bit more painterly. And some just doesn't want to – some could actually feel harsh. Like, even, like, we – it doesn't always have to be beautiful. And I think that's what, that's what makes your beautiful moments much more beautiful. You have – we could have a light, like, straight over the top and just – just really harsh light for like this kind of hot, intense, and you know, and where the backgrounds are not always so beautiful. And I think that's that's kind of the ebb and flow of how the movie kind of works. Um, and then we have uh, you know challenges of location. We shot in India, we shot in Pondicherry, and we also shot in Munar and the tea fields. And both those locations are quite spectacular as well. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the visual references because one thing about this movie to me is it. It really doesn't look like any movie I can ever remember seeing, and so I was kind of curious what what are the specific visual references you guys had? I mean, what specific painters, or were there other films you looked at, or, or you know, what were the specific things that you and Ang Lee discussed as as models for the film? Well, I saw some films that were definitely references of things not to do, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and as far as like paintings, I don't remember exactly the one painter that he hadn't. Um, 
in mind, but I, I definitely with Shaw, these really like watercolor, like there's one scene where um, it's just really still, I mean, the, the water's like glass, and this is kind of really kind of surreal, like sunset, and it was, uh, and it's quite, you know, strangely painterly, you know, the quality of the light, and, and, it was just, and it's just the quality of light just said this total serene of helplessness. I mean, he throws a message in a, in a, in a can, and he throws it out in, into the water, and it's, it's, you know, you just know that this is a pretty futile attempt to say that the vastness as it was. So this kind of lighting kind of reflected that kind of, that kind of serenity and alone and, you know. It, it seems to me like just at the script level, this would be a movie that you would read and it, it sort of poses certain challenges right off the bat. I mean, for one thing, as you said, about half the movie is basically a guy, one actor and a tiger on a raft and a you know lifeboat out in the middle of the ocean. I mean, that's that's it. And which is, I would think, you know, kind of an interesting and yet also a, a dawning challenge. I mean, when you first read the script and you first met with Ang Lee, what were your, what were the two of yours initial conversations like? And what were your concerns about the challenges that you saw ahead of you? I mean, Ang had a lot of concerns about shooting digital and shooting 3D, and but he really wanted to, you know, felt strong about tackling this, and he wanted to introduce a new way to look at this medium, and to make it more like staged and really kind of make the audience be it become like more immersive so he really wanted to to make this feeling like he's the audience is in and and I really originally when I went to the meeting I didn't know it was going to be 3D but you know I mean I think both Tron Legacy and uh, Benjamin Buttons were I mean pretty much the reason why I, I you know I got the meeting in the first place so I talked about a lot of things about 3D, what I liked and what I didn't like about 3D. I didn't like, and what I think are falses and trues. And and he talked to me about like how does something feel and and just you know he would even say things like jiggly feelings that he just didn't like about certain things. And I would go sometimes I'd go watch these movies that gave him supremely jiggly feelings, and I go like, well, uh, you know, and I would say this is the reason why you feel this way. It's it's. It's not conceived in 3D. You have to kind of, when you do a 3D movie, there's certain framing, there's certain ways you may want to frame something if you're trying to get a certain effect. You know, you may want to open up headroom if you want them to come out a little bit. I mean, there's just little things that you just may just, you know, just, you know, change in a way, uh, the framing. Um, so it, we, we kind of liked, we'd had this conversation back and forth and we kind of liked where we were kind of, you know, I was very good at interpreting his reasons why he disliked a certain things and actually it, it made me actually chase some of those things and find out you know put that into test and i said hey Rang, here's what you're looking like here's your jiggly feeling back and i swung in a different direction i said here's a calmer way to look at this and then we liked the way that kind of felt more immersive and more just calm you know a lot of people try to make you know kind of crazy 3d and this is not that kind of movie this is not I mean, every now and then there's a stick, but it's not really like gags that that fly out. It's 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 more of a immersion. So you know, when he walk, talks about staging of how you know if an actor's like really you know at the screen plane or slightly forward, and and if it's and if it's aggressive stage, of how the audience feels with that different kind of staging. So we talked a lot about how three D staging lenses and 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 a lot of big challenges just really how to move the camera around this tank. So. Um, and to, to make it feel different. So when you watch the movie, you're not like, okay, here we are in the, the tanking with the boat again. It's it's every scene is something different, and it's a, it's and it has a different lighting approach in a little bit, just to make it 
just has different sensibilities. Well, that is one of the things that struck me about the movie is that even though you are basically stranded with these two characters, one of which is a, you know, I'm assuming computer generated animal for most of it, you know, you start, you stuck with them for an hour, but the movie never feels static or self-conscious. I mean, it's very immersive and involving. And I'm wondering what things that you did to keep that interesting without sort of forcing it, if you know what I mean, like, like without getting overly show off of your self-conscious. I mean, what were the things that you were, you were doing in terms of the camera and lenses and, and things to kind of keep that whole hour long sequence or whatever it is, you know, well, we were never really afraid of like just the offsides weather. We weren't afraid of high noon. We weren't afraid of complete banal overcast where the lighting really didn't have much of a character in a way. It was just kind of, you know, like if he was in a soft environment, the lighting, there's no shadow. or But that was kind of appropriate for that kind of maybe a solemn moment with, when he's when the when the tiger is is, is in his lap and it's, the lighting is very much just it's not it's non-directional so that you know those kind of those differences in look and the way the camera moves you know we, we were very conscious about trying to keep it you know obviously crazy handheld is not great for 3d so we'd keep it kind of you know going in when it needs to go real slowly and you know keep the you know some of the action stuff when the cameras are going around in the crazy ocean gets a little bit more tricky but i i, I do feel it's immersive it was it was a test we did off of venice pier and it was interesting watching it as the water became from being a screen plane to kind of go infinite. And I felt, I was like, you know, I think at that point on some of my tests, like I almost sold myself on the whole process. Well, when you're, when you're testing, I wanted to get a little bit more into that in terms of the testing for 3D, because you, you said something interesting uh, when I heard you speak before about the testing process and how you kind of see it as a time to do the things they tell you you're not supposed to be able to do. Um, if you could talk a little bit more about, about that and no, I mean, I, I, you know, there's all these rules that people gave me for Tron and, you know, one of them's like, you know, depth of field, you need lots of depth of field. And I, I kind of go like, well, if you're supposed to be looking at someone's face, I mean, yeah, if it's bad and you're just watching some plant on the side, you know, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that, that is not exciting at all. I mean, if you like the scene, you're watching scenes, your eyes fall in the right place, I believe. But, you know, some people do when they do tests, you know, they're, they're tired of walking the stand in because it's totally not interesting. And then their eyes start wandering around. I mean, Ang did that, too. You know, he was like, I'm looking around. Oh, wow, I feel dizzy because something he's trying to get sharp, not sharp. But I said, Ang, you know, watch the scene, you know, like you're really going to watch the movie, like you're really looking at this actor and then everything falls into play. So there's a lot of rules that I, I you know, when I kind of found out about 3D, I kind of found every rule that I wasn't supposed to do. And I tried them all. And. Some don't work, and and some 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 work, but in a new magical way that you never thought of, and you can kind of play with those. So I I, I like a I pretty much like breaking those rules and then kind of finding out why not to do something. Mm-hmm. So um, continuing in terms of of the pre production phase and and choosing your camera, what uh, what kind of cameras did you use on this movie, and why did you choose? The camera system you chose. We, you know, I tested. You know, I always test. I run all the cameras up against each other, and I found the Alexa. This water had uh, this movie. Sorry, this movie had a lot of challenges over because of the water and just the natural light reflecting off the water, and and, and you definitely don't want that to be synthetic or electronic or noisy. And I felt like the Alexa was kind of pretty good for for not showing 
digital artifacts and highlights. And those are those can kind of scream. And you just don't want a bunch of little chiclet boxes running around. You want smooth kind of gradations and highlights. And that that I thought was a big challenge for a camera. And I thought, I thought going with the Alexa. I mean, it was kind of a it was a little bit of a landslide. We kind of looked at other cameras and I did it. This is the test off the pier, and I mean, it's a pretty beautiful shot. So is that whole process of of prep and testing, and is it appreciably different in 3D than it is on another movie, or is it more or less the same process that you go through? Uh, you just have more on your task to test. You know, you want to test, you know, if there's any, you know, um, any filters you may want to test or to try to cancel out polarization and try to meld the eyes. You just, you just want to test all, you test different lenses and you test, you just keep on, you just keep on putting everything to the test. Highlights, where you know, background bright lights in the background, foreground. How you feel about that, you know, and when to break that rule or not, if it is a rule in anyone's eyes, you know. So I just, it's all part of testing, you know. Well, I'm presuming, yeah, you know, from just from looking at it, that this was an extremely visual effects heavy piece, and I'm wondering how closely you work with both the visual effects supervisor. And the production designer on integrating those elements. I mean, are there are there different design considerations that come into play for the sets and the CG images and things like that when they're being shot in 3D? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mainly talked with, um, I spoke a lot with uh, Bill Westerhofer, who was the, um, the, the key visual effects uh, supervisor. And we talked a lot about, you know, the backgrounds that would go against the lightings that we were kind of creating on, on in the tank. So we did definitely, you know, sometimes the, the tendency a little bit sometimes is to make it the backgrounds beautiful all the time and i don't and that's not what was necessary in this movie you know so we would go and we'd look at skies in you know in 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 some of the vfx meetings and we would say like that that's that's a this guy works with what my lighting was you know and we we talked a lot also during the movie so he did have a good sense of when i was lighting something you know what is this lighting in, integrating into well, how does it affect how you're lighting when you're doing a scene, say, uh, any of the scenes where you've got the lead actor and there's the tiger on the boat with him? I mean, I'm assuming that for the most part, that tiger was computer generated. You know, tiger's computer generated. I mean, it's uh, if if you see them together, they're not together. I mean, we did have, I think it was like 20 shots of a real tiger because we did have real tigers in there. And I think that also, you know, gives the VFX department a kind of, you know, they can't be, you know, you, just, you, you can't go on, you know, you can't go less than the real tiger. Right. So, and I think, you've seen the movie, right? Yes. Yeah, and the, the tiger's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I think people would maybe call the wrong, you know, the wrong thing. That might, people might say, oh, that one's fake, and it could be the real tiger. Right. It's almost that good. It's really great. Yeah. Well, the only reason I assumed it was digital was just because I figured there's no way you can keep an actor on a boat with a real tiger for. Uh, yeah, but then you got his POV that could be a real tiger. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so when you're when you're lighting those scenes, I mean, is there what's what's actually there instead of the tiger? I mean, uh, is there- instead of the Derek, there could be a, a guy in a blue suit that could be crawling on his hands and knees, running around. Um, we there was, a, there was an extensive amount of previs done on the movie. Uh, for how and we and we spend a lot of times watching tigers and how they move and how they can move and it was also uh you know a tiger expert on set that would say like hey the tiger moves like this and we would spend a lot of time working at choreographing about you know the guy running on his hands and knees around with you know the the actor Siraj. um and you also mentioned that you know the water i mean there's there're also a lot of 
great 3D shots in the movie that actually take place underwater. Um, you know, what? How were those shot? Where were, I mean, were those shot in some sort of tank, and what, or, or were they computer generated, or what does that kind of stuff entail? Well, I mean, it was a little, you know, it was, it was the main, it was one of the main reasons to go to you know, pace for for the 3D camera system. And it, the main reason was because they've done underwater work before. So they built us a, a, a pretty amazing underwater 3D camera rig that that held the Alexas. And and uh, we built, um, there was not just the main tank that was where the waves, we could make any wave we want to. That was 30 meters by 90 meters by, uh, I think, three meters deep. There was also a bigger tank for when he launches the, is a kind of a classic shot. Well, I don't know if it's classic. I think it's a very unique shot of him suspended and watching the boat um, sink into the depths of the ocean. And that was done in a uh, 30-foot tank. And uh, yeah, it was like 30 by 50 by 50 because we knew we needed the depth to get him down. And it's also used that tank to sink the hallway. And there's an underwater shot in the hallway. And that was a very tricky shot just because we had to take this 150-pound camera and go down the two flights of stairs and into the water and then continue the shot going forward. And, you know, just a lot of logistics to kind of figure out with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting movie to watch, um, you know, in thinking also about Tron Legacy because obviously, as you say, that was, I'm sure, one of the reasons that you were chosen for this movie. And yet there are some big... There, there's, they're sort of like matched opposites in a way. I mean, Tron Legacy, you're doing... A lot of lighting in that movie is actually built into the design, even even down to the costumes. The characters have lights in their costumes that are lighting each other and things like that. And this one, in a way, um, you know, well, it's just it's, it's very different. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those those kind of differences and and uh, you know, did you have a kind of I guess I guess the word would be an overall lighting philosophy for this movie. No, the lighting philosophy I always have is I always like try to be as motivated from natural sources as possible. I don't really like if I start feeling the light, I feel it's false. I mean, you know, I always love practical lights. And I, you know, there was this one scene that we did in Pondicherry and we had this huge, I think it was like a 200 foot by 200 foot pool. And they, they put the Vishnu in on a boat and they, they float her around this. And it was like this big ceremony. And I really wanted to kind of have this lit kind of by its own self in the middle of the night. So we, you know, I was there and I, I said, let's get, let's get, let's get a lot of candles to light this. And I think it ended up, I think I said in the end, I think I started counting out the footage and it was something like 50,000 candles we needed. So, and I think the art department brought around 120 candles for the whole scene. And, yeah. and when you watch, and you were sitting back there and you watch that whole thing lit, and it's mainly 90%, 90, 90% of the homework is, is all candles and lighting this huge, vast base. And there are candles everywhere. And it, those are kind of one of those. And I just love, I love real light rather than putting up a balloon or, you know, trying to make some sort of, you know, additional light to what's already really beautiful and you want to capture. Well, I think, you know, I think a lot of people are going to, when they talk about this movie, they're going to talk about the whole sequence out in the water, but there's actually a fairly stunning first half of the movie that takes place in India that's mm. that's also very vibrant and, and mm. colorful and, and, and beautiful. And I'm wondering how much of, those, how much of that sequence um, was by design and how much were you just sort of capturing what was there, I guess, you know, I guess in terms of keeping that philosophy of like going with, uh, you know, Nat natural light and things like that. I mean, how much 
of that kind of vibrant look of the India sequences was, um, you know, by design and how much of it was you guys just kind of capturing what was already there. I mean, there was more paintings about India in, the, in, the, in Munar and the tea fields. There was this, there's a, where we leave the um, candle scene and, the, and it comes into a sky and then it tilts down on the tea fields of Munar. And there was a little bit, you know, more extensions we kind of did to mountains to make it feel a little bit more magical and a little wispy clouds because we definitely wanted to have a sense of kind of a little bit, you know, it's real, but there's a little bit of magical in in it and the tea fields by themselves are very magical they i mean they look like a like this kind of i think it's maybe why we picked it a little bit they look like a brain the way they yeah. kind of they, they're not they're not like they are planted in rows but when they grow they kind of form kind of a kind of a cauliflower top with no set pattern and it and it's really quite stunning to see there's some some movies some cuts some footage that wasn't in the movie and we saw the tea fielders picking teas and you know, it's really quite a magical, magical background. Well, one thing I wanted to, to ask you about this movie that's, that's very interesting and unusual is that you actually, at a couple of points in the film, um, change aspect ratio. And I'm not 100% sure if I'm remembering this correctly or not, or if it was just my mind, my eye playing tricks on me. But mm-hmm. it even seemed as though in, in one sequence, you you switch the aspect ratio from 185 to 235, but you're using the black up above and below. It seems like some of the 3D, like you know, flying characters or whatever, seem like they're almost sort of breaking the frame. And I'm not sure if that's if that's just an illusion that I was imagining, or if you guys really did that. But oh no, we did that. We actually used that as a black mask to kind of go over and under. And initially, Ang wanted to really play a lot more with with um, different aspect ratio framings. You know, you want there was one to one. There was one three three. There was Two, three, five, and we, 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 there was originally planned a lot more. It's actually funny. <laughs> there was one, one, uh, one magazine thought, oh, I'm sure they'll fix that later. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. <laughs> Some little tech, oh, that's just a technical glitch. And I go, well, the fish were flying <laughs> right. through the borders. It's obviously intentional. And, uh, but, you know, I think, you know, Ang said that, you know, the flying fish sequence was the one you're talking about, was Ang really said, this is a vista shot. I want to see, there's a lot of, trans, you know, left to right translation of fish flying back and forth. And this one, he really wanted to have in, in the 235 aspect ratio. And with also fish kind of, fish kind of flying over the borders and play with that and have a little bit of 3D fun with that. I think it's pretty effective. It's pretty fun. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. Do you, uh, you know, do you, in terms of, doing a movie where you're kind of changing the aspect ratio occasionally, things like that. I mean, do you worry about the, uh, about issues when it's actually projected or do you, does digital projection kind of take care of that? I mean, it, you know what I mean? Like, does, is there any fear about once it gets to the exhibition stage, if it's actually going to be shown properly? I mean, it's just a small scene, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's only, it's, there's only, there's the book cover shot was the top shot that's done in one, one, three, three and the fish sequence. And that's, and that's probably only 10 minutes long. But the beginning is, it instantly starts 185. So everyone will know their projectors is wrong or off, hopefully by then. Um, so I don't think there's really much of danger. I mean, there's, it's in- interesting, the choice of, I think, you know, 185. And when I did Tron, it was a 235 movie. Um, I, you know, I went and kind of measured screens. And usually kind of a big problem with 3D is just overall brightness. And I kind of found out, a little bit through just testing to some local, some theaters, you know, around the Fox lot that there was potential to be brighter on a 185 
movie more than a two three five movie. I mean, I know everyone's kind of like, you know, you know, calibrated, you know, you know, in theaters, but I always feel like the option to have more light in one eight five, and I think that's a critical thing that you need to have. You know, the thing that th- suffers a little bit is the three D is not bright enough, but that that just helps it and puts it over the edge. Well, the movie has a you know really astonishingly vivid palette, uh, and I'm wondering how much work did you do in post uh, in terms of timing the movie and the digital intermediate or whatever? I mean, how much how much work did you do to fine tune the color in post? Well, they made a, a you know we spent a lot of time D, you know in DI you know not just colorizing but integrating and making sure that the the CG tiger and and the the hyena and the zebra and then everyone was just they need to feel grounded into the environment. So, and um, Rhythm and Hughes was very great in giving us mats so we can kind of play around and make sure that when you look at it, you go like, yeah, this settled, this is this is really in the seas. And we, we did spend a lot of time at the ocean and looking at different waves. And we, you know, and for those who were kind of my lighting references, I took some stills and said, here's what a real environment looks like. I mean, there was one kind of, there's a, a funny story of, of Aang and I, in the middle of the night, we went out in the ocean and we went to this uh, phosphorescent kind of bay. And so just Aang and I both dove in the water and we're just playing in phosphorescence for about an hour or half an hour or something like that. It was, it was kind of a little magical moment. We're all just kind of waving our hands and just phosphorizing the whole place. And then, and that, that kind of led to the look of the the phosphorescent the whale that gets trapped in phosphorescence and gets you know coated by this magical glow. Uh, something I meant to ask a little earlier that I that I forgot about, but I, I wanted to get back to the actual shoot. When uh, when you're shooting uh, a 3D movie like this, how do you how do you monitor what you're actually getting? I mean, how how close can you tell what you're capturing to how it's actually going to look in 3D down the line? I mean, what kind of monitoring system do you have for that? Uh, I usually get like a good monitor and I usually have my waveforms. So I'm pretty comfortable with that. I, I feel like I can, I've, I've, I've done, I mean, the tank, I can't really go out there. I mean, it's interesting for, for, you know, focus pullers and all, cause you can't set marks on water. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't judge distance at all. So everyone's, everyone's really has to be like glued real tight and their heads are all just buried in their monitors, just getting focused because there's no, there's no, way you can actually walk or even like judge distance at all especially with the tank you know has the tank was built to go up and down eight feet and you know they they tie it to the bottom so it doesn't like go off but it still may have like a 20 foot radius of where that will be and we also devised a you know spider cam rig that we can live fly and that could fly anywhere we want the tank and you couldn't, I mean, that was one thing. Spider Camp normally goes A to B on a pre-program, but that mark will never be the same, you know, probably crash. And so it, it was all very, we may program a move, but then we could also overlay, uh, uh, you know, an added, you know, add to, oh, we need to go more here. So you could still do a program move, but with an added um, kind of control. And then when you're in post, you know, I know I sound like a broken record with all these 3D questions, but mm-hmm. the... Um, are there things that you can do or even want to do in post in terms of manipulating the 3D in terms of like the convergence points and things uh, like that? Or? You could always you could always change your um, your screen plane. You cannot change how distance it was photographed between the eyes or people call IO or something. Some people call it IA and <laughs> it's different. Everyone has a different, but just the basic distance between the two cameras. You can't change that. But you could actually change where it is on 
on on the screen plane. You can make little adjustments. I mean, on on Life of Pi, we 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 worked really hard to make sure that there's like your eyes aren't seeing the correct information. There's no like distortion on one side. We really worked hard on on tackling all those little imperfection polarization problems that can make you kind of go like, you know, this feels uncomfortable. I think my wife, you know, she, you know, normally dislikes 3D and can't really, you know, and doesn't sit down, you can't sit down in there. She really thought it was kind of easy to watch, you know, and I found most people I talk to will feel that kind of way, that this is not like, you know, a tragic 3D event. You know, it's, yeah. it's really kind of immersive. It was one of the few movies I've seen in 3D where I didn't feel the desire to take my glasses off halfway right. through. Yeah. So it's, yeah... Um, and so now you've either, I don't know if you've completed it yet or if you're working up, I know you're doing another movie with the director of Tron Legacy, Joseph Kaczynski, um, Oblivion. Is that in 3D as well or are you? No, that one is in 2D, which is. Was it nice to go back to that after? It's a lot easier. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just, the thing about 3D, it does take a lot more time, you know, and it just, you know, when you plan out your day, that is, you know, if a lens, you know, if it's, you know, like on Pi, the lens was in a bag that was sealed and, and had all these hoses going to it. So, you know, getting the lens out and then changing and putting a new lens on could be, you know, half an hour. You know, in, in 2D, it's like <laughs> under a minute. Right. You know, <laughs> you know uh, it's a big difference. And it's a big difference in, in your day. Yeah. So you, you do ha- you have to, you know, you have to allow for your schedule, which was allowed in Pi, you know, the schedule of th- the, the 3D tax and time. Well, I think the you know the results speak for themselves, and uh, I really appreciate you coming in here to sure. talk with me about it today. So this has been Jim Hempel and Claudio Miranda, ASC, talking about Life of Pi. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.